Please be advised, the Kind of Movie Critics podcast may contain spoilers. This includes most of the movies you're going to want to see. This shit also contains profanity, so there's that. Enjoy. Yo, yo, this is Treasy. Hey, hey, this is Corey. It's Martin the Mailman. It's your man Chandler. And I'm Young Leezy. And we're the Kind of Movie Critics, uh, here for a fine post-MLK episode, uh, where we're recording this audio goodness. Um... My my intro, I really got to work on my intros, guys. I I, I think I thought that I think, was so good. That was good. You thought that was good? Incredible. Was I'm insane. always like waiting to see what you're gonna say, like because yeah. you always will say it and then be like, "We're the kind of movie critics." Uh, I'm just gonna be fucking awkward for a second. Yeah, well, that's that's <laughs> kind of my default setting, man. You know, I've I've realized that like, I it's kind of like meditation for me, right? Like I don't I don't meditate as consistently as I need to. So every time I sit down to meditate. It's kind of like relearning meditation, but when I do it like three, four days in a row, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm kind of in the groove. So since we don't pod every day or we don't pod mm-hmm. every week, it's like every episode that we do pod, it'd be like once a month. It's me kind of getting back in the groove. So I think I just got to pod I, more. In college, I went on a trip to uh, to Burma, studied mm-hmm. with some monks, and uh, they taught me actually how to enlighten myself uh, past med- meditating. So now I met at nine um, <laughs> and I, on occasion, I've even reached a meta 10. <laughs> you, you're First a meta of all, idiot for you that You would have sold that so much more if you just said me and Mar. I don't think it's been Burma since you've been alive, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got, Yo, I got a, I was like, Burma's where, um, uh, what's someone called? Batman's butler went. And uh, remember, he was talking about he was in Burma. And it had a Freddie, he had a Freddie Branker. <laughs> no, he was, Alfred was like he had a ruby the size of a tangerine. Uh, yeah, 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 you're right. You're and they were throwing. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, my 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 impression's horrible, but yeah, that's your yeah, Michael Caine. Yeah, it's somebody. No, that's so your Michael Caine. <laughs> we established in the last episode that I have a very good Michael Caine. You do. You do. You do. You have a pretty. You, you know, you have an amazing Michael Caine. I think Corey should spend some time with you. <laughs> what is the What is the drink that he has in in uh, the Dark Knight Rises that he says he has a body body brain guard, something like that. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I've seen McClunky. it's a tiny little. It's like the name of the liquor. I got to turn on my wireless keyboard and look it up. I'll do that. I have my seen. I've keyboard. seen the first two Batman's like a million times. The Dark Knight Rises. I've seen twice. That's like, a that, very oh, good wow. movie. And that movie sucks, dude. You're crazy. It's a Fernet. So it's probably pronounced Fernet. Uh, mm-hmm. Fernet Branca. Yeah, that's what he has and that's at the end he's he goes again for his yearly for a bronca and he sees uh uh you know bruce wayne there and he's still alive spoilers for the dark knight rises great ending incredible movie uh should have won best picture or been nominated at least that's just bane's yeah. voice is the best thing ever he's yeah. talking like this the did whole you? time and it's supposed to be intimidating i did uh <laughs> no bane's voice is great i did a really good version of that let me see a, it let me see it let me see it let me see uh, it a version of that you did a version yeah, yeah. of version a version a version he did a version hey, you gonna make fun of me from where i'm from okay hold on here we go let me get close to i'll show you <laughs> uh, perhaps he's wondering why someone would shoot a man <laughs> Instead of throwing him out of a plane. 
think I got the quote pretty wrong. Good. Wow, that's, that's pretty good. good. That is gotta, really good. Yeah, I, they say, good. There. I was 18 years old when The Dark Knight Rises came out, so that was the most important movie to me, and it was the most important voice for me to learn. Gotcha. That, that makes perfect sense. I did it with a red solo cup back in the day. Red solo cup <laughs> around cut the a hole th- That's th- ingenuity, goddammit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you cut a hole through the bottom or did you like just let no, it No, no, no. You want the, the resonance. You want it to kind of come ah. back up at you. There you go. lizzie has got one right now. She's practicing. Oh, do the bane, Lizzie. With the cup. <laughs> you got it, no. Lizzie. Lizzie, give me the line. You're first like a younger man. <laughs> <laughs> no, not on your life. <laughs> it was kind of all downhill for Tom for Tom Hardy's voice after that, man. Because then he did the Revenant after that, and you couldn't understand nothing he said. He's it's like a, every movie after Bane, you just couldn't understand him. Now he's a great voice guy. He's I love what he does. He's he really he takes a, a big swing at every role. Even like Venom, it's like he's doing the most cartoony New York accent in Venom. For a character that lives in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice ass. Well, with today being a uh, inauguration day and us getting uh, Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris in office, it feels like an appropriate day to be talking about this specific film, One Night in Miami. Don't you guys agree? Yes. Oh, yes, we all agree, Tracy. Yeah, <laughs> that was my impression of everybody at once. Is that what we sound like? <laughs> yeah. When you're all talking together, it kind of it's like you know how like white is just you put all the colors together and it makes the color white somehow. It's kind of that like, true? No, uh, it makes gray, yeah, which is my favorite color. <laughs> oh, okay, with all I oh, got it, but um, yeah, man, I think today's the appropriate day for that, man. Um, especially since. It came out on Martin Luther King Day, which was also Regina King's Day, which prompted me to say, I wonder if Regina King and Martin Luther King are related somehow. And I had never thought about that until this movie came out, and it was both their birthdays on that day. Furthermore, I wonder if the King and I is somehow related to (laughs) the two of them. Mrs. Anna. I I never thought about it that way, but now that you you mention it, you might be on to something. Um, Michael Jackson and, and, often referred to as the king of pop. I, I mean, I'm just saying there could be. I, I see how you're tying it in. I yeah. see how you're tying it in. <laughs> yeah. But in but in commemoration of this day, I think it's time to uh, bring back an old tradition of putting a white man to work. And that's cool. <laughs> reading this synopsis. <laughs> For One Night in Miami. We For hadn't even said the name of the movie yet. <laughs> oh, we didn't? Oh, yeah. No. One Night in Miami, the directorial debut of Regina King. Okay. Synopsis, please, Corey. One Night in Miami is a fictional account of one incredible night where icons Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown gathered discussing their roles in the civil rights movement and cultural upheaval of the 60s. See, I already found holes in the synopsis. It was Cassius Clay. Mm-hmm. At this point, when they when they entered the room, it was Cassius Clay. It wasn't Muhammad Ali listen, at that point. Listen, I can only go off <laughs> what IMDB is willing to present to me. Mm. Let's just go ahead and just go ahead and pick a nit. Find a nit. Pick that hoe. <laughs> yeah, pick that. yeah. Well, that's what I do. You know what I mean? I see. <laughs> yeah, but if he if he said Cassius Clay, it would have been racist because it would have been like he didn't want to call him by his Muslim that's name. That's a slave name. His mama called him slave name. I'm going to call him Clay. Listen, uh, if a man wants to be called Muhammad Ali, <laughs> goddammit, this is America. <laughs> he has the height. <laughs> you don't even know what that's from, Chandler, do you? 
That's coming to America, man. You don't get that, that movie, joke for real? That movie came out before his time. He's a 90s kid. He was born in the 90s, man. He was I've born seen, in 94. I've seen Coming to America, but I was a little kid. Oh, you were a little kid. Oh, yeah. so you have negligent parents. Oh, got it. I I think I've talked, <laughs> not on this show, but I've talked on Act 3. Like, yeah, my parents let me watch a lot of just things I absolutely shouldn't have been watching. That's why it turned out the way that I am. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was Your watching Coming to, like Amer- Coming to America at like six years old. And I was like, this is great. I didn't get it. But That's it about how old I was when this shit came out. I definitely watched it. Uh, well, you're, you shouldn't true. have been watching it either. It's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Uh, you know, I made a joke about it, but I, I think that has to be the most prolific birthday of all time. You know, Regina King, this be, her being the director of One Night in Miami, and then it releasing on her birthday, which also happens to be Martin Luther King's birthday. I feel like I feel like if you're if you're into filmmaking, uh, you know, if you're a filmmaker at this level, I feel like there's no better present than you releasing, you know, a film that you probably worked years on, you know, to to in, in, that's met with very high praise and reception to come out on your birthday. Wouldn't y'all agree that that's probably like the best birthday present of all time? She definitely gave that present to herself. That's what's up. Well, I, I don't know because you know, you don't necessarily have control over release dates, you know, it's, that's true. It's, it's, you know what I'm saying? Now, now it may have been suggested by her and, you know, and maybe they pushed it, just off of the whole, yeah, you know, like marketing might have been like, yeah, that's actually a really good strategy. Come out Martin Luther King's birthday and it's Regina King's birthday, you know, so it feels more like a marketing thing. But nonetheless, Regina King wins in that particular in that particular scenario, if you ask me. And then is and then correct me if I'm wrong. Does this movie make it in time for Oscar uh, for Oscar? Yeah, talks something for Chandler would know. Actually, you know, I wish that I knew this year. You know, the I believe the consideration window runs until early February, so it might it might make it in there. But you know, everything's everything's postponed this year, so because like the ceremony is not happening until April. So I I, I want to say yes, but I I can't guarantee that that's right. Well, but doesn't it have be to because... be screened somewhere? So like, if it was at a film festival and someone bought it, does that count? Right. I think that does count. I think that does count. Yes, I don't know that if does this count. was. The, I don't know if that was the case with this, but this I was probably was some... at some festival, right? All the festivals were virtual, and yeah. I didn't keep up with the coverage as much this year. Um, even though I'm someone who absolutely eats that stuff up, you know, it was a weird year, and it was it. It just nothing had the uh, the same feel as years past. So I, I feel like just you know, not in terms of a tangent, but like all the big buzzy movies this year, I'm like way out of the loop. And I'm someone who's like, I always have my ear to the yeah. ground on that stuff, but it's just, it's, it's all gone over my head. In yeah. I was looking at a lot of people's top 10 lists and I, I didn't even recognize like most of those movies. Exactly. Yeah. And usually yeah. like by this point, if you're someone who keeps up with it, right, you like know the movies, even if you haven't <laughs> seen them, cause you've seen them written about places. Yeah. Stuff right. This year. Nah. Yeah. It what definitely was on Obama's list? Um, I forget. He said all he did last year was watch Transformers Age of Extinction like 50 <laughs> times. <laughs> that sounds like it's right up his alley. That's right yeah. up his alley. Um, um, so, you know, just a little bit of, uh, more background about this film. It was written by, it, it first of all, it was a stage play. I didn't, I didn't realize it was a play. Um, I didn't know that either. When I really? Know, while, while I was Wait, watching it, I never I heard did not this. know that. But then, it felt like a play. Yeah, about halfway through, I put in the right. group chat, I was like, this shit plays out like a stage play. And then Chandler was like, it was, bro. 
And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, like, once you said that, it kind of made, you know, it made sense at that point. But I, I didn't know just off of, like, the trailer and things like that. I yeah. didn't realize that it was a stage play. But then, you know, reading about who wrote it, it was written by a gentleman by the name of Kent Powers, uh, who also wrote Soul. So Yeah, he, I saw that. He is having an amazing you know, I guess fourth quarter, first quarter, 2021 with soul coming out in December. And then, you know, mid January, uh, he, you know, he's got this joint, man. So, well, you know, and it just, actually makes a lot of sense because there is that long second act stretch in this movie where Cassius Clay turns into a cat for like 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I did see the parallel and it, it didn't even ring true until, yeah, uh, I didn't get it, it until right now, but yeah, you can really see it. He, he turns into a cat, but Malcolm X can still understand whatever he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Logically it was like, ah, but emotionally it worked. So I was willing to be lenient. That's funny. That's funny and terrible at the same time. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, with this coming out and then my Rainey obviously being an uh, August Wilson adaptation, uh, I'm, I got to say, man, it seems like stage plays, it, it, you know, adapting into film is, I mean, obviously it's been a thing for a long time, but um, these are these were really two good properties to me that were adapted into, uh, you know, into into movie pieces. Um and it just, it, you know, it just makes me wonder, like, is that the wave that's happening for black film right now? Like, are, you know, are we going to find more things to adapt into? Is that kind of the wavelength that we're on right now? Does anybody else get in that vibe? Or is it just um, coincidental? I think that I, I was listening to uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour discuss, like, how this directorially for Regina King was, like, strategically, like, a good move. Because because she's doing an adapted uh, stage play, then it isn't so much of an undertaking production wise, like having to like worry about all these locations to film in. Yeah, like right. it kind of narrows the scope of what she has to do to do a good job. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a wave in black film so much as I can think of like there's so many plays that have been adopt- adapted into film, some better than others. Mm-hmm. Um. I was I was saying in the chat earlier, because um, Chandler asked, like, my favorite adaptation of a play into a movie where it's just kind of like you don't even notice that it was a play is Steel Magnolias. I hate mm. you. Not cats. I've never seen cats. But Steel Magnolias doesn't feel I didn't like even a play hear you at said all. That. <laughs> That's really funny. There's, I mean, the very like end of Steel Magnolias where they're in the graveyard feels like. A play, but outside of that, it, it really doesn't feel like one at all. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I still haven't seen Still Magnolias. That's an amazing movie. What are you doing with your life? And watch the one with the white people in it. Like we didn't need Queen Latifah to do that. Oh, I didn't we didn't need Chocolate did Magnolias. Like I hated that. <laughs> That's what it's called, <laughs> Chocolate Magnolias. No, it's called Still Magnolias. It's the exact same movie. The people are just black. Gotcha. And I hated it. Gotcha. Um, I wanted my Sally feel back. And y'all can judge your mothers. This is, I feel this genuinely. Um, another good play adaptation that I rewatched recently um, is Doubt with uh, oh, Doubt. Mel Street, yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. uh, Milo Davis. Davis, Amy Adams. Yeah. That doesn't feel like a play no. either, but it it is very monologue, dialogue heavy, like um, to be able to get things across. Right. And they only kind of added in like a couple scenes to to offset the the play feeling i guess right. is what you call it i think i might be inviting a horrible storm upon myself but um i we were in the group chat today talking about uh 
the episode of that I, of Act Three that I did where we were talking about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and I mentioned um, my feelings on fences. And I I don't think I've ever had a discussion on air with you guys about fences, but I, I really felt like to me that was a that was an example of a bad adaptation of a work, simply for the fact that I, the text is powerful, but I felt extremely bored in the theater watching it because I just felt like Denzel Washington uh, behind the camera didn't bring the necessarily flourishes that are that are important when you're um taking something that is really dialogue like you know sort of single location heavy and then you're putting it on screen but it's not it's not real people performing it in front of me and so i think it can get very anemic if you don't um take the the careful steps to make it feel cinematic and and that's that was my problem with with fences i i enjoyed the text very much but the first way I interacted with it was that film, and and it didn't really work for me. I mean, do you guys think that that is a is a good adaptation of a of a stage work? Um, I think that's really subjective. I'll say I'll say this. Um, I think the best examples of film adaptations of stage plays are ones that don't feel like stage plays. You know, like you watch The Wiz doesn't feel like you're watching a musical on stage, even though they're giving you the word-for-word dialogue. Um, but I think that when you, what do they call it now, like teleplay or whatever? Like when, I think when you know that that's what you're signing up for, you have an expectation on how it's going to go. Right. And so do I think Fences is a bad adaptation? No, because I know what I'm signing up for. Um, so if, you know, if they're, they're telling me it's an adapted script of, of August Wilson, I know that it's going to be monologue heavy, which, which Ma Rainey's was also. And mm-hmm. I know that this set is not going to vary a whole lot. I know that I watched American Sun. There's one set in American Sun. That's all you get. That's it. But I, and I mean, some people hated it, but people who hated it probably don't go to theater, probably are not into film adaptation. Well, so I think it, if, if, if you don't enjoy the medium of like stage acting, you're not going to enjoy adapted um, stage plays. You're just not going to. And I mean, obviously, I'm a theater kid, so I like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say it's bad, but I definitely can understand why it's less enjoyable to someone who doesn't like to consume that. Yeah. In Does that, that make way. sense? Yeah, that is not, you know, I'll be the first to admit I don't have a lot of experience with, with theater and, and stage work. Um. And and so if things like I felt like my Rainey was a, a much better, uh, well, I would say it's much closer to what I'm looking for in terms of an adaptation because it is still monologue heavy, it is still in one central location, but uh, the direction was so energetic and and kinetic that it really drew me in on a on a cinematic level because so much of what I'm signing up for with any film is is visually how it's going to be presented to me, and so. I think that that's just it comes down to my personal taste. And, and so I, I, I all this to say, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and, and yeah, I probably shouldn't have said that the fences is a bad adaptation. It's just not. I mean, obviously, the Academy awarded it. So, <laughs> but I, they awarded the shit out of doubt also, which is if you haven't right. seen, I encourage you to watch. I, it's on my HBO Max list, but I haven't seen it yet. No. It's amazing. We'll talk about that on our own time. But it's great. So, uh, you know, that well, that brings up a question for me, because you were saying that I I forget what podcast you said you were listening to, Lizzie, but 
the, um, um, I was listening to um, Pop Culture Happy Hour, the NPR podcast. So, so, okay, first time feature film director is is directing stage play material. Is that is that really like for the reasons that you named? I can understand why it would seem like a very non-risky venture, right? Like a very safe step into the world of feature film. <clears throat> but also it seems like it's because, because of the limits in location, uh, because of the dialogue, you know, sort of heavy nature of, of stage plays, it seems like it could be very, it could be a very constricting challenge, right? Cause, cause now you have to, you have to make material more interesting with your coverage, Right. Like, you you know, one hotel room. I mean, they play with it. They go outside. We, we get the box, you know, we get the, a little bit of the boxing match. We get a little bit of the the diner. You know, we get, you know, a little bit of Malcolm's house. We get other places, but the meat of it is inside this hotel room. So does that does that become a harder task because it's like less ways to cover this material? I don't think so. I think it's probably easier if you're an actor turned director because you get to remain so focused on the text and the performances, which would be Regina King's area of expertise anyway. So mm -hmm. I, I would think that that would be uh, an incentive to uh, adapting or directing an adapted work um, as your sort of uh, maiden voyage. But you think the advantage is Regina King being an actress? Yes. So, but so if she wasn't, do you feel like well, this I, is the, the dream job to come out to? Well, there's lots of different directors, and, and I mean like different styles of directors. I think you have people like uh, Ridley Scott, for instance, who's one of my favorite directors. Ridley Scott, I don't think, is a text guy. Ridley Scott is traffics and, and visuals and and editing and pacing and, and mood like that. That's in every interview I've ever heard, every commentary I've listened to. That's what he seems to be interested in. Christopher Nolan is interested in. Uh, in logic and plot mechanics, right? So I just think every director has something that they're dialing into um, on, on their own personal level. But I think that a lot of actors turned directors tend to really hone in on performance. Mm. Um, and maybe the department heads, you know, your DP, uh, you know, your editor, uh, maybe, maybe they're sort of helping craft the, wow. the visuals more so than if they're working with a, a Jim Cameron or, or a Chris Nolan or something. Well, what I was going to chime in was too, is that the reason why I started feeling stage play is the same reason I feel the same way about Quentin Tarantino. Like the only, it's those long dialogue scenes, you know what I mean? Like Quentin's probably the only person in mainstream Hollywood that's doing these can do a 20 minute dialogue scene, you know? So when we were, when they were first in the hotel room, I was like, okay, like we're just going to keep talking, <laughs> you know? And which is fine, but at the same time, I would actually argue it's harder because, I mean, there was a part of me that kind of was like, before I accepted that I felt like this was a stage play, I, I wasn't going to turn it off, but I was like, uh, okay, is this what we're, is this what I signed up for? And the same way that people sometimes feel about Quentin, they, they can kind of disengage with it because it's, it's very jarring, I think, in 2020 to have a movie that has such long dialogue scenes. I would you like know, to introduce you to my good friend, 
Charlie Kaufman. Oh my God! <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> yeah. Who seems to not give a fuck about the structure of, you know, Anything. dialogue? Yeah, <laughs> so which is thinking fun. of ending things. I just, yeah. I think there's there's people who who get, you know, in the same vein. I have heard people who get turned off by Tarantino. They they could get turned off by this, and right. I think as a director, I think that w- I would be terrified of that. Like, holy crap, the whole thing takes place in one place. <laughs> you know? um, and I'm people to make are that... turned off by it though yeah, you know, that yeah, is a thing yeah. like some people I like my best friend like she enjoyed this but she hated my rainies <laughs> she was just like yeah. oh my god she didn't even want to watch Fences because she just like I don't enjoy those kind of adaptations I think that um, Regina King did herself some favors though just um, an additional research of, of the film so the scenes that you see, the four scenes at the very beginning of the play, of the play, of the movie, where each of them has had like a bad experience or, or had an experience that is like um, shaping their mood for the night. Those right. things are not originally included in the play. Those are mm. scenes that she added that. Um, well, she was brilliant for that. Yeah, she added that to, to, to give the movie, you know, some more interesting scenery for one thing and then two like it takes away um some of the work in the middle of the play of them having to explain what they just experienced yeah Yeah, you got to see it right i was about to say um, it's it's a yeah i'm sorry to cut you off but you're absolutely right like you said it sets the tone Mm -hmm. um and 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 all you you just put it very brilliantly it does a lot of the heavy lifting so that way yeah 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 because uh, you know you know, I have a little, I have probably out of everybody on that screen, I have the most historical context to Malcolm X. And then and then Muhammad Ali would be second. I don't know anything about Jim Brown that much outside of, you know. Um, Bad uh, shit. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, the co- a couple of wild black ex- black exploitation films. You know, he was in the NFL. And then, you know, I know he was, he was very active, you know, in, in like, you know, trying to, in like gang communities, you know what I'm saying? He's very active in that space, uh, uh, you know, trying to bring things together. And then, you know, I know I knew very little about Sam Cooke. I saw a really good documentary on Netflix, The, the Two Killings of Sam Cooke. Oh, that, that was me, very good. It was extremely good. That, that, that So that gave me a little bit more education on, on, on who Sam Cooke was. But um, those four scenes, you're absolutely right. In those four scenes, I totally understood their perspectives when we started getting into some of the very, very, very intricate dialogue. Um, uh, so good. Um, thank you for calling that out. So if I, I would say this, man, if if Regina King, you know, even if I mean, her adding that was just complete, you know, pure genius. Um, but even if this scares you as a stage play adaptation going into film, there is no way in hell that you can read the elevator picture. You can read the synopsis of this and not get excited as a creator to say Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown in one hotel room. What does that conversation or those conversations look like? And that was the thing that was racking my brain when you first told me about this, Lizzie. And I got to tell you that the film really delivered. It really delivered in matching the um, creating, I guess, the fantasy of what that would be and making a very good historical archival sense when you talk about the the time frame and the things that happen afterwards it made it just made so much sense 
I, I just mm-hmm. found myself. What, what getting... would these men have talked about in that situation? And we can never ever know that, right? Um, and like clearly they've never shared it. But but what's really cool is that like what it could have been being shown to us in this way is like probably cooler than us ever knowing what they actually talked about. Oh man, I, I, I'd much rather imagine that it went this way. Okay, let's talk about the pre-scenes, the scenes that warmed up the plate. Um, Corey had some feelings. He did, and I I, want to talk about that. The Jim Brown scene, when he goes to where he's from in in Georgia and sits on the porch with Bo Bridges, um, that was a very jarring scene. And, and, and Corey, I know you had some perspective on that. I'd love to hear you. Um, So that scene... That I told Lizzie that scene that scene messed up my whole morning. I watched the movie on um either Saturday or Sunday morning and uh uh I, I I had to pause the movie. Like I I literally didn't see I didn't see that coming. Like and I mean I know we're watching a movie about this, you know, the during this time frame, but at the same time, I just it, it was very, very unexpected. And I if there was a movie I haven't been punched in the gut in a long time like that i literally was just like i can't believe i just saw this i can't like i don't know what it was if if i don't if anybody saw it coming let me know i didn't i thought this was a a pleasant conversation that was happening and this was a good experience and two people just meeting up and you know i knew it was in the 60s so i thought maybe these were just two people who weren't into all that some of that bullshit right and then they were yeah then the script flipped i I, I mean that is a mad that that scene uh, that is it's a crazy scene to me because i just did not see it coming um so socially there were some cues that something was going to happen um and this is just me being black and really fucking sensitive but um (coughs) typically a person who's going to receive you receives you inside their home Hmm. and they'll say come on in and it is like, I'm paying attention. He never said that to him. He mm-hmm. came outside and sat on the porch with him. So when he was like, well, allow niggas in the house, like it wasn't, it wasn't completely surprising to me because he never invited him in, in the first place. He entertained him on the porch. And that's, that's not, you know, traditionally Southern people welcome you into their home. I knew something was afoot. I didn't know exactly what was going to happen though. Yeah, I, I mean, I got to say, I'm, I I should have known, you know, uh, I, I'll say that I should have known. But I, I, I was like Corey. I was completely caught off guard. Um, you know, I thought I, the way the conversation was going was like him being an NFL player gave license to a certain space that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have been met to him. Um, and I mean, I totally got that vibe. And I thought that that's just where they were. You know, I never it never even dawned on me for a second that there was going to be a whole you know thing about going inside the house you know I thought it was just that was just establishing who he was in the culture who he was to the world um I didn't realize they were going to hit us with that gut punch so I'm you know what I love about that Jay-Z I'm not black I'm OJ okay Okay. (laughs) right right yeah, you, you you still are like yeah. um, you still are black. Yeah. No matter how much you accomplish, the challenge of being black still exists, and I think that that's like a beautiful illustration of 
what that can look like. Yeah, what that can look like. You know, it's funny you saying that line. I, I could totally imagine Regina King sort of uh, pitching it that way, too, you know, sort of relating to the material in that same exact way with that same exact reference. Um, I, I see her being in tune with 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 culture in that way to where she would use that as a reference. But Martin, did you have so, any thoughts or feelings? Oh, there it is. Yeah. So was it yeah, like nah, his... Martin was leaning forward? I was like, yeah. oh, he got something to say. <laughs> No, I, I mean I think it's 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 a crazy scene because it's like you could see a lot of it reminds me of the um the scene in Do the Right Thing where uh they're talking to John Totoro about his favorite like basketball player. He's talking about like Michael Jordan and mm-hmm. Michael Jackson, but he's just as racist as anybody else. I mean, I think that's that's something that definitely applies to um our current society <laughs> now. Right. Um, but also like was it a thing of his were his parents like sharecroppers or something and they grew up on that island or like what exactly was his relationship with to that man because i know his family or whatever was like i guess back in the day his family were probably slaves and that guy was that guy's ancestors were his um were the slave masters was that what was that, going on yeah that, that, um that's a good question i i, I can't really I don't I don't I didn't look it up. I I interpreted it as island life tends to be small, you know, that you have all these people living together and regardless well, of Well, he race, said yeah. he said my family has been taking care of your family like for years. Yeah, he did. So, yeah. Yeah, you're that's very true. I, I think there was that sort of connection there. Uh, uh, th- some relation of that there there was some that you know, they worked that, together yeah that house was yeah. clearly a plantation or something of that sort At some you know, point, that's, yeah. that's how the house looked you know um so, so so i would imagine yeah that there's some overlap there in that way and he kind of also made it clear in that conversation that like you know everybody else has a problem with you but i but i don't because of you, because that's what family that's what yeah. messed me up because the conversation led that you know it felt like he was cool, you know, right. it just, he kind of was like, you know, cause he said, you know, not everybody's been as accepting. I think, right. I, I think Jim Brown said something along those lines and, and then to get that, it's just, yeah, it, it's just such a flip of the script, you know? And then you're right. It is a sad testament to like, yeah, you're, you're still black. Yeah. Like no matter how cool we are, no matter how famous you got, no matter how cool we are, like you're still black. And yeah. you're not allowed in my house, yeah. <laughs> which is fucking awful. Yeah, that's 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 pretty heavy, and it's sad that it's still sort of there's still a lot of uh, that covert, um, sort it's of. It's not covert to me. That's not covert. It, uh, yeah, it's I mean, not I th- covert. Th- these people, those people, don't think of themselves as oppressive and racist. Sure, but I don't think that that's covert. I think that that is very like um, emblematic of like what you will see in terms of like southern pleasantries it's like I'll, I'll interact with you in a certain way but then there's a boundary where i do not want you in my space and people can be i always say that i'm like i I'd, I'd rather take someone who will tell me exactly how they feel but still be polite than someone who will pretend not to feel that way yeah, and be I, a dick i'll take southern people over that other shit any day right. and 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 <laughs> And I can see why you say that's not covert. Um, that, that was probably the wrong word. But I say that in the sense of I don't think Jim Brown saw that coming in that conversation. I don't right? think so like, either. Yeah. yeah so so, it's, so yeah. covert's not the right word, but definitely not um, 
it, 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 there's a it, pleasantries. You said you said it really good. The southern pleasantries, you know. Um, all right, so so that how, was a heavy. How scene. did you guys feel about like the cast in in this? Um, Great question. In this movie. I was surprised exactly to where see, I wanted to go. I thought yeah. with the casting of Jim Brown, I, I just was very surprised you guys were talking about, um, you know, I obviously only really knew about Cassius Clay and Malcolm X, um, but I didn't know that James Brown, before his musical career, had this, like, <laughs> 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 yeah. Shut up. Um, I th me personally... Okay, I love Jim. I th I think the casting was amazing. I, I I'll say that. I, yeah, but it was. I I think um I, I really like uh, Aldis Hodge for Jim Brown. I think I he is so underutilized. Very much, man. He's do he's you, one of the uh, crown fun, jewels, man. Fun fact: Do you know that he was the original Derwin in the game pilot? It was him. Oh, oh well, really? I can see it now. Wow. That you say it. Yo, that's why yeah. we've had a lot of the game on in in uh, my uh, residence here. My my lady has jumped from sister sister to the game. Yeah. Uh, oh, she's a she's a Tia Maori fan. Yes. <laughs> so uh -huh. and uh, the the game is a weird show. I I haven't. I've only caught glimpses, but. That's very interesting. I feel like he would have been a little bit. Uh, he's he's a higher caliber. Than yeah, he's I would a have. higher caliber. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and he's a North Carolina man, so he, he's you know. Oh, really? Yeah, he's from North Carolina, man, and and I I really like him for that too because it's just not a lot that comes out of North Carolina. Yeah. And I, I think I I do think he's a very high caliber talent. I really liked. Um, I think I think Leslie Odom killed Sam. Cooke. Oh to me, my that, God! That was yes, the best cast he was ever. perfect. He was he was the perfect role. When I first yeah. heard that he was going to be, I was like, No, nah, I'm not really digging that. But really, like, why, why did you have reservations about Sam, um, him playing Sam? Cooke? I don't know, man, because I don't know much about Leslie Odom outside of Hamilton. You know oh. what I'm saying? So it's so. Um, he played Aaron really Burr, sir. Correct. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> that, me. Yes, he, he, were, yes sir. he were, sir. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I but, uh, beat you, I beat you. <laughs> yeah. So, so I just, you know, just my reference to him in Hamilton. I mean, I know the brother can sing. Uh, I just don't know his acting chops. But, you know, had I known that this was a stage play, I probably would have just felt like that was, that probably would have sat better with me right off the rip. You know what I mean? Um that's his. That's where he shines. Um, I saw him do some dramatic work. He was in. I don't remember what it was called, but it was that movie that he was in with. Um, why I know this girl's name, the one from Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, Frida Pinto. Thank you. Yo, I know you I, know she. She's your type all damn day. Oh, but listen, <laughs> that movie where like listen, they were trapped mm, in a. Um, yeah, that movie sucked. Um, it did suck, but he yeah. didn't suck. Yeah, <laughs> he 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 didn't. He wasn't that great. But. He he didn't suck. Um, he's also in a movie, a, a made-for-TV movie, Love in the Time of Corona. I enjoyed him and his wife. Um, oh, that were yeah. Together, that was cute. He, I mean, he, interestingly enough, his wife plays Sam's Cook's wife in this movie too. Mm -hmm. um, oh wow! I I enjoyed Leslie Odom. I I knew that he could do it. Um, I I didn't have any reservations. Yeah, me neither. I, I'm really I, I curious think... about Kingsley. Uh, he's he stood out to me in another film as well. I, what did I you see him in? Because I love him. That is, that um, is no edge up having ass. I love Kingsley <laughs> Benadir. I fell in love with him watching when he played Kareem Washington on season two of the OA. That shit mm. got really weird. And I was like, who is this beautiful, light-skinned man? <laughs> you know what? I, I found it because I'm going to tell you, um, I was forced to watch a terrible, terrible film. And 
I thought he did a decent job in it. It was uh, the Disney Plus uh, romantic comedy, Noel. Uh, oh, I didn't even know he was in that, but I am on it. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not a good film, but it had Bill Hader in it, which I like yeah. Bill Hader. and Because well, you are Bill Hader. Am I? Am I? <laughs> Guess um, who's getting us side by side on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I norm- those movies I normally check out, and um, I remember him standing out. I was, I was watching it with uh, my roommate, and... It's your wife now, bro. She's your wife now. Let let's not call yeah, her your roommate. Yeah, oh, listen. Corey's married. Yeah, Corey, listen. Corey got she, whole married during quarantine. She's she's gonna be my roommate for all eternity. Um, <laughs> I think that's romantic. It's very romantic, right? It's very you know, it's very exclusive to our 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 dynamic. Right. But, but you, I remember, but, but Lizzie, you notice that he whispers, "Yeah, me and my roommate." So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so shit in here. Listen, I got fans. I got fans. I got to keep the dream alive. So, you got responsibilities. I, I I I know I know your wife. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I so this this young gentleman he he stood out in in a piece of shit film, and I was like, "Who's that guy?" He seems like he's you know doing some good acting, and uh, so there you go. Yeah. I had never seen him before in anything, and Me I will neither. say, I was completely blown away by his performance. I, I think mm-hmm. he's the standout, the number one for me. I, I was, I think every word and expression he delivers on screen is so electric. I mean, he yeah. is. It's like your eyes are glued to the screen when he's talking. I was, I was really blown away. He's fantastic in this movie. He's the standout. Yeah. He, yeah, he, he's very, he, he definitely did, very good did that. I think, you know, I think Malcolm Heck, Malcolm X is hard to emulate physically, right? He's just, he has a very, very, very unique look. So, you know, nobody who's played him up to this point have I resonated with the physical attributes of Malcolm X. And that, that goes for, you know, for this brother's, adapt, uh, for this, for his, you know, for Kingsley's uh, portrayal of it. But I'm right with you, Chandler. Like the, his delivery you know, the amount of uh, compassion and passion that he, you know, sort of wove into every line. Yeah. He, I, I felt something about this Malcolm X portrayal that I don't think I've ever felt in any other Malcolm X portrayal. Uh, Do you Denzel watch Washington's Godfather included. of Harlem? I don't like that portrayal of Malcolm X. I don't Are like that Are you crazy? One. I'm dead serious. Godfather of Harlem to me, it's, I'm not really. I'm not. I'm not there, man. Listen, man. The brother, the, the Malcolm X's portrayal in that doesn't feel strong. Like there's a lot of times he's hunched over, hands in pocket. He doesn't feel very authentic. He doesn't feel like. I don't get that sense of like. I don't get that sense of resilience from that portrait. I think that is actually the worst portrayal of Malcolm X that I've ever seen. Wow. On, we'll on argue film. about this later. Um, there was there were some times I love Kingsley. I will just yeah. I will just say that. I love I love Kingsley Benadire. Call me. Um but <laughs> he there was it wasn't the line delivery was good for me, the emotion. I feel like he played Malcolm in a way that I hadn't seen him before. There you go. Um and me and Erica were talking about this, my best friend. She was saying Hey, that how how's she doing? She's great. She's been on the show before, before you joined the cast. Um, but, <laughs> but she she said something that I, I couldn't put my finger on why it felt so different. She was like, he played Malcolm as scared, which is like at that time in his life, like the appropriate way to play him. 
I will say this though, um, the mannerisms, I felt like he got Malcolm's glasses wrong. Like, mm. um, he kept grabbing the bridge of his nose. Um, and Malcolm would do that, but he would always take his glasses off first. I never saw him do that. Like, you know what I mean? Like with, with glasses as a way on, of like, yeah. With, yeah, with his glasses on and like, um, you know, touching his temples and stuff. Like he was, he really was like studying Malcolm's mannerisms. I feel like he kind of overdid it, though. I was um, gonna say that there was a scene where he grabbed his the bridge of his nose like two times, three times in a row, and I was like, "Calm down, dude." I think she so, cut that together really weird. If I had to guess, I didn't notice that. I mean, I. I don't know. I'm familiar with the, and I'm sure not to the degree that you guys are, just because I grew up with white privilege and instead of having to educate myself about culture. But that was weird. Um, <laughs> weird flex, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> um, but I I don't know. I wasn't I wasn't thinking about that at all. But I, on that note, I think it's an interesting point to bring up because do you feel like there's a responsibility when an actor is playing somebody who is uh, a real life figure. To what degree is their job to emulate the mannerisms and affectations of that real person versus their um, their responsibility to just be a serviceable character in the story that's being told on screen? I, I would be interested to hear yeah. your thoughts on that. Well, I, there's a I always say when this topic comes up, there's a fine line between acting and then an SNL impression, you know, and like there's if you if, if you if you do the mannerisms too much, if you, you know, if you start doing it to a point where it's like excessive, then you start venturing into the SNL category and that can get very jarring and very pointless. Like I, I really was like, why are you grabbing your nose like four times in a row? Like, stop. Like at that point, it's taking away from the point. I, I I don't need that to understand what Malcolm was going through, you know. And it just becomes kind of silly. I think so. I think I think you're absolutely right, Corey. I think at a point it becomes caricature. I'm not going to say that Kingsley necessarily crossed that line, but he got very close to it. Mm. Um, in terms of like directing choices of Kingsley as Malcolm X, let me back up because I have I have said many times that I'm not a fan of our historical portrayals of of um, African Americans whose stories are very much shaped by the struggle of being African American being played by Afro British actors. However, I do feel like we've had enough African Americans portray Malcolm X that like we can have an Afro British actor portray him. One of the things that I did not like, and I think it was more of a choice than Regina's, I did not like her showing Malcolm in his underwear in front of his children at the end of the movie um, when they show his house being bombed. That bothered me so much. I do believe that there is footage. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen it. I do remember in um, Spike Lee's Malcolm X, they show Denzel, he's wearing a shirt and he has a robe on, but his robe is closed. Um, I, and at that point, you see him talking to um, the press. So I do believe there probably is footage of him because, um, you know, it's like a reenactment of him talking to the press. So I yeah. do believe there is footage of him outside of his home. I do not believe that him as a Muslim man would be outside in his underwear in front of his female children. And that irked me so much. I felt like 
it dishonored him in a way. Uh, I know that authentically someone might run outside of the house and not close their robe. I, I thought didn't, that was I didn't just want to like, see it. I don't want to see that. I read that in that moment, and and I don't have the context that you do as, as background knowledge, but I just read that as, this is a very fit man. And this is a way to like, and I, I don't, I'm not joking. I'm not even joking. I just, I know you're not. Element. It's funny to me though. I think there's an element in filmmaking where it's like, you have someone's body, you know, show it. it. It's, it, it makes enough logical sense in the scene where I think it could be like, Hey, this is a way to show the vulnerability of your character in the moment. And also you look incredible with an open robe and he does. Uh, and so that, that's how I interpreted it. But, now that you raise that question, I mean, I, I'm also thinking about, like, the validity of that decision. Well, it felt, if you, it, I felt what you just said, that it was like, let me show you Kingsley's body, but it felt cheap because I do feel like Malcolm would have had some modesty and close. He wouldn't have been standing in his underwear in front of his daughter. Mm-hmm. I didn't like that. I, I, so, and I'm not sure a thousand percent, but, you know, the 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 documentary that came out during... I believe it was last year during quarantine. Who killed Malcolm who, who X? Killed Malcolm X. They, have, they have that footage. Uh, I'm going to go back and He was talking to the press and, and, where, and where Betty Shabazz was talking to the press. And I do believe he was in underwear. Um, I mean, you well, I know he was, was in robe. His robe was closed, though. Yeah, he, would, he wasn't. I, well, I'm, I'm not certain about that. I'm not okay, absolutely I'll look certain back. about that. But I'll look could back be and right. I'll apologize to Regina King, but like that. That really bothered me. That's interesting. I, it didn't. It didn't bother me. But like, it didn't bother me until you just said something. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely about his faith and and his stature. And, that's you a, know, and modesty yeah. in their culture and showing exposing that's your body a, that's to a each very other. Real like thing. That, I just, yeah, I, it is a very. I have, yeah. I have people in the nation in my family. Yeah, it's um, a very real and maybe in a three pool of the cool. So yeah. I'm like. I, I can't I can't imagine my my cousin who's my mother's age like walk he has several female children I can't imagine him walking around in his underwear in front of his kids like I just right. don't I don't interesting see it. I just I just interpret it as if my house is on fire I'm just going to exit however you know I may be sleeping which is in a hoodie so I'd be outside in a hoodie and sweatpants but maybe but yeah but I, I yeah that's how I interpret it but it just is, it felt like Chandler said though like. It's just okay. sexy man. Let me show you a sexy man. And I was like, ah! interesting. But if, if, <laughs> if what you're saying is true, then that does suck. You should take a little bit more time and, and do that. It didn't stand out to me. It stood out as my house is on fire. I'm going to exit right. however the hell I am going to look. But if you're correct, then, you know, they should have got it right. So mm. I mean, shout I think- out to Kingsley for having such a flat stomach. I mean, that thing was uh, <laughs> I think the purpose of like the portrayal of Malcolm X in this movie is just to show him as vulnerable because mm. he kind of is this infallible figure in black culture. Yes. Whereas like even Martin Luther King, like as far as like his personal life, there's certain things that people do to like humanize him or to say he wasn't this like great figure that we think he, I mean, obviously he was, but Malcolm X is like nobody could ever throw dirt on Michael, Malcolm X's name. He was always this, like, gargantuan figure in our culture. Uh-huh. And I think this movie is kind of trying to show that, no, he was human. He was vulnerable. He he had problems. He had he had blind spots. He had issues just like everybody yeah. else. And I think, yeah. that, I think that part is very important because, you know, I, you know, I was talking to Corey about this earlier. There's just a very, I think there's just a very black and white, no pun intended, 
uh, um, hey, um, uh, there's a very black and white <laughs> yeah. interpretation of who he is. You know, I think I think I think any you know uneducated, and when I say uneducated, I mean uneducated on him. You know, white culture that's uneducated on him. I think they just think he was the most militant, the most you know. I hate white people, you know, uh, by any means necessary, you know, the picture with him standing with the gun, looking out the window, like he's, he'll shoot one of us, you know, like, I think, I, I, I think, um, it's just a very, very hard, stern interpretation of who he is. So I, I like the vulnerability for that reason. Um, they do a little bit of that in the Godfather of Harlem, but yeah, not not to go back to that because I think that, that is absolutely the worst portrayal of Malcolm. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think that is necessary f- for us to, you know, for other people to see him, like you said, Martin, very vulnerable with blind spots, you know, with issues and with, you know, I mean, you know, you're dealing with a nation that you have dedicated your life to, that you feel like has saved your life, has completely turned you around and made you the man that you that you are ultimately proud of being, you know, to have a rift in that, um, that can cause a lot, man. You, you know, the, the, you know, death threats and, you know, your house getting, you know, caught on fire and you being followed by suspicious, you know, FBI or, you know, CIA, you don't know who it is, you know, all of that can create mental issues, man. You know, uh, you know, very, um, not mental issues, but you know, like you anguish, know, yeah, paranoia and things of that nature, man. And that's that's a very real thing that people deal with. Um, so I, I do like this portrayal of him because of that very, very much. I, I thought I thought Cassius Clay was really good too, man. I no, Eli Gore killed that. Yeah, he killed uh-huh. that, man. He his accent was slipping here and there. Um, but I thought the accent was really good. I did too. It, I so I think that uh. One of one of the things that um, we also talked about me in the conversation with me and my best friend is she was saying how she was comparing Kingsley to Denzel and Eli to Will. I enjoy Eli more than I enjoy Will Smith as Ali. Agree. I think he was um, a little. I think he was a little too bulky. I thought he was very bulky. I, I don't feel like Cassius Clay was. He was big, but he he had more of an athletic build. This dude had more like of a wrestler's like. You know what I'm saying? He had like more of like a wrestler's build. Yeah, I, that didn't bother me so much. The whole mm-hmm. time I was watching Will do uh, Muhammad Ali, it felt like Will Smith doing a Muhammad Ali impression. Right. It, watching Eli Gorey, I felt like I was watching Cassius Clay. It didn't. Yeah. It, I, he was completely immersed in the character. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, I didn't notice any slippage in the in the accent or like you know the voice yeah. that he was doing. It, it seemed. It felt consistent to me. Um, yeah. Would you guys mind if I shared a quick anecdote about? I'm just thinking about the last thing that Treasy said. Yeah. And and I I'm sorry to take it back a second, but uh, the whole thing about about Malcolm X's portrayal that that Martin was getting at, um, you know I grew up not really knowing much about Malcolm X. I learned a ton about Martin Luther King through the mm-hmm. public school system. Right. Um. I did not learn much about Malcolm X, and I the first memory I have of him coming into my worldview was I was I believe I was in the fifth grade, so I was ten ish years old, and my dad was watching the Spike Lee Malcolm X movie, and I watched a little bit of it with him on TV, and I was asking questions, 
and my dad sort of gave me, you know, the rundown of who this guy was. And then I went and I checked out a, you know, uh, like a, a book about him from the school library, but it was like a very, you know, one of those thin books that just kind of gives you the overview. And ashamedly to this day, that's probably the most knowledge I had about Malcolm X. I've never gone back and watched the Spike Lee movie all the way. Um, I've learned, you know, just through absorbing various media over the years, like I've learned a little bit more, but this movie was very enlightening to me in terms of showing a more nuanced version of this figure. Um, and and so I I think that I, I, I all this to say, I, I'm just trying to echo the sentiments that Martin and Treasy were sharing, like this portrayal, I feel like is important because mm-hmm. it really not only affected me very emotionally, but it uh, it informed me a lot and it made me hunger for more knowledge. And I think that I can't be alone. Um, as a white person who doesn't know that much about Malcolm X, I'll be honest with you. That's by design, bro. Yeah, that's by design. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, I meant to say this too. Uh, I think Stan Lee taught me more about Malcolm X than, uh, through X-Men. Yeah. Right, yes. Yeah, through X-Men. Yeah. And, and I, and I love that about X-Men and that is what I'm a huge X-Men fan. Um, and, and it's largely for that reason, because I love it as the sort of rebellious social work that was given to children in the contemporary period of the struggle going on. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I think that this movie, I mean, that, that maybe that's why that was my favorite performance in the film. But I, I found it extremely moving. And, and, and like I said earlier, electric is the, the adjective for me. I just I couldn't look away. And it was it really it really taught me something. Yeah, That's don't dope. feel bad. I didn't know Sam Cooke was dead until yesterday. I need you. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> I need you. Whoa. To oh, go man. to your corner. I thought he had <laughs> one song, too. <laughs> you thought he had one song? That's the only song I knew is Change Gonna Come. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Interestingly enough, Chandler, by contrast, um, I had always seen images of um, Malcolm X, and I was around like 11 or 12 when that movie came out. And I remember going to see it in the theater um, with my parents. And that movie had the same effect on me that you're saying you're experiencing now. I had a hunger to learn more and more. And at 11 years old, I read the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Haley. Yeah. Um, did yeah. you when did, did you read it to Treasy or? Yeah, I, I read it. I read it in my early 20s. Yeah. yeah, I read it at 11 years old. I've been woke this whole time. Yeah, you've been woke for a long, <laughs> long time. Yeah, yeah. I read it in my early 20s. Um. Yeah, it's it, it. I was just about to say, Chandler. Um, I don't think that's just a. I it's not just a white America problem. Like, there's a lot of uh, you know black America that is it's just as blind as you are to the plight of what that brother stood for, um, and, and what he dedicated his life to. So, so you're not alone in that. It, it, it truly is by design, man. Uh, you know, even even the whole Martin or Malcolm to, to me, that's by design. It's like, you know, once you start to really kind of understand you know, the trajectory of their lives, you know, at a certain point, you know, they, they kind of, they understood each other, you know what I'm saying? They, they, they kind of flip roles in a certain way. Um, you, you know, the, you know, after that pilgrimage to the Mecca, you know, a lot changed for Malcolm, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and how he thought about, 
um, how he thought about the, you know, the, the views of the NOI, you know, and compared to like, how do you call it? Like the, like the Sun- traditional like Sunni, Islam, like Su- yeah. Su- Sunni Islam, you know, yeah. how, traditional. Um, I kind of so, like that. So, um, this movie doesn't really mention Martin Luther King as far as like, from listen- I don't right. think it does. Right. I didn't. Yeah. I don't think it does. Yeah. Because like, a lot of times in, in like Martin Luther King's movies or the Malcolm X movie, it, it's kind of, it highlights this like negative relationship between both of them. And in right. this, you don't get that at all, which I thought was really good. So That's a good point. Let me this ask movie a good does have. Oh, go ahead, Corey. Oh, so I asked this in the chat before. When does the movie become fictional? Is it why? Does anybody know why they were in the room in the first place? Is that true? They were. Malcolm invited them to to come there after the fight. Is that uh, true? So I think I think um, the way I read it, the four men were absolutely in that same hotel room after you know um, Muhammad uh, Muhammad Ali's fight with Sonny Liston. Um, uh, but of course, no, you know, nobody knows the accounts of what specifically happened in there. And from what I understand, uh, I think Jim Brown actually had a. I think there was like there was a big shindig that was sort of planned for Muhammad Ali, but he was the one that said, "No, let's go to this little like black. I know this little like black owned hotel. Let's go there and let's just cool out." You know what I'm saying? So, so the way I read it is that it was actually Muhammad Ali that got everybody together in that room. Um, and the accounts that happened in that room after that are obviously you know fictionalized. But uh, I think hypothesized nonetheless, like, you know, they say the very next day, that's when um, that's when, you know, Muhammad Ali kind of uh, made his announcement that he was turning Muslim. Uh, that happened. Converting. Ve- uh-huh. Yeah, converting that uh, that happened the very next day after that, after that hotel room. So um, so I think like the way the course of where history went just gave a good bed to hypothesize what was potentially the you know, the subject of conversation inside that room. Um, I think uh, that to, to properly examine any issue, right. And any sort of stance, I think you have to challenge um, that stance or that issue and those views. And I, I think that it talking about, you know, fictionalized text, I think that that's the greatest strength of this, um, of this work as, as a work of literature is you get such subtle, nuanced discussion about these issues, and it doesn't shy away from anything, and it doesn't feel like propaganda, and it doesn't feel like it's... I mean, it's obviously... it's like it's These are viewpoints that you can get behind, and these are characters that you support fully, but I think that the ability of this script and, assumedly, the play and the performances of these characters, the strength that they show in, in challenging this and having these tough discussions, I think that is what makes this feel like a timeless film. I mean, I think you could show this movie to people 200 years from now, and it'll be just as important as it is right now. I can see that. And especially with, I think, to all right, the conversation, the conversation to me that turned this thing, that just, turned the heat up completely on this entire film was the Malcolm X and Sam Cooke conversation about, uh, you know, 
the very overt, you know, political jargon and using, you know, your, your celebrity to ignite a, a, a social stance and a political stance as opposed to uh, freedom or black ownership. equality through yeah. black ownership, through black ownership. Oh my God. God, can was that the was that the climax of the the film for you guys? Yeah, that that was like the high point of the film. Man, that discussion is the fucking discussion <laughs> that plagues us to this day. You know, uh, you know. So so before, probably like an hour before we started recording, I sent you know I put in the group chat. Um, uh, it, it was a Spin magazine article from 1990. And it was an interview where Spike Lee was interviewing, basically having a conversation with Eddie Murphy. And I don't know if you guys are aware of kind of like the rift that they had in their career. No. I'm not. <clears throat> okay, so let me break it down to you kind of fast so we could, because it's very, it's very parallel to this conversation. But basically, you know, Spike felt like Eddie Murphy, at the peak of Eddie Murphy's stardom, when he had the deal with Paramount, the picture deal with Paramount and coming to America and Harlem Nights to come out and 48 hours, all that success. He felt like Eddie Murphy was not using his star power enough to really put people in black people in positions in Hollywood. You know, he felt like he, he was just very much like he wasn't just using his star power to that to the ability that he felt like he could. He said, you know, any man that brings $2 billion into a studio, which into Paramount, that's, I guess that was the figure that uh, Eddie Murphy's movies had grossed up to that point. You should have a say for what happens in that house. And Eddie Murphy was very much, his position was very much like, that's not my house. You know what I'm saying? Like I have Eddie Murphy productions that lives on Paramount's lot. And within Eddie Murphy Productions, I hire pretty much the only people that work for me that are not black are my managers, you know, um, but everybody else is black. And that's what I can control. I don't have the power to 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 say otherwise inside of Paramount. And it is such a good fucking article because to me, it's the modern day conversation of what that conversation was, you know, how to use your celebrity to leverage you know, political and economic freedom for your people. And is that even your responsibility to do so? Because Eddie Murphy was saying some things in that article that were making a lot of sense, which is I am not a politician. I'm a fucking comedian, you know? So there's an expectation on me to deliver my message, to continue my art, because if it ain't funny, then what the fuck, you know what I'm saying? So he, you know, and sorry to use all them curse words, but, um, (laughs) We've but never it, apologized for cursing until I'm growing, <laughs> I'm growing man. I'm growing. You're, like you're witnessing 70 the episodes. <laughs> but but to, it was Literally. just a very it was yeah. just a very important conversation. Um and it's something that I encourage everybody to go back and read. 1990 Spin Magazine, Eddie Murphy, Spike Lee. Um, I don't think that um you're right. That is that is an age old like what kind of empowerment is the best kind of empowerment? And I think it's not uh, either or conversation it's a it's a a both and everyone's not comfortable um being a Malcolm X being outspoken and taking the position of opposition publicly everyone's not comfortable doing that and I think that um it is just as important to maintain your livelihood to be able to empower other people who are marginalized 
Um, so there is value in moving quietly to put other people in position. Um, I don't think everyone has to be the face of the revolution. They can, they can be a cog in the machine and that's okay. Right. But, but, you know, but arguably at that point, I mean, Sam Cook, I, I would say at that point, it seemed like Sam Cook and Jim Brown were probably the biggest celebrities in that room. Is is that, is that what you guys gathered from that? I, seemed, I read. Yeah. At that, at that point in time, I think so. Maybe. Was yeah. Cassius Clay not bigger than those guys? Well, no, he had just that night that he beat Sonny Liston, that that was the night that he became the heavyweight champion. Up until that point, okay. he wasn't. So I think that was the beginning of his stardom. And then, and then, okay, so let's look at age, right? Malcolm X in that room at that time, I think he was about 38. Um, Sam Cooke was probably, what, about 30 at that point? Jim Brown, I would say 27, 28. We are spitballing numbers. That's crazy. Yeah, but but I Jim but I, Brown I, looks about 48, 47 in this movie. No, he was still playing. <laughs> he, he was still in the NFL, you know. But so I'm you, saying you the actor that. looks old. Aldous Hodge oh, is absolutely yeah. not 48 He's like years old. Th- Aldous Hodge is probably like 33. Really? He's probably early 30s. Uh, I, would, I would say let's that. Find so. out. Yeah, he's older than that. I've seen him oh, okay. you know, a lot of stuff. Yeah, but I mean, he could have been young. Aldous Hodge is 34. Uh, thirty-four. Yeah, so I wasn't for her. Okay, so wait, is him and that guy? What's the guy from uh, Lovecraft Country? I'm sorry, I can't remember. Jonathan Majors. Yeah, Yeah, they look old looking guy. No, Jonathan Majors got a old looking face. Who else said Jonathan Majors looks old? Someone. That was me. That was me. He does look old. He's got an old face, bro. He's got a young. He's got a young body, but he's got old. Oh, come, hey, yo, <laughs> That's bro. one of my favorite lines, and um, it you I know you know what I'm talking about, Tree. In uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, when uh, Mike Elts rolls up on Jonathan Majors and Jimmy Kills, <laughs> and he's like, he's like, he keeps making jokes at Jimmy. He's like, get in the car. He's like, I see you, Jimmy. You young old looking nigga, get in the car. Daddy face. <laughs> Man, that part was so underrated in that film. Um. And 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 so in Muhammad Ali, he had to be that had to be like what twenty one, twenty two for Muhammad Ali. So so that's important to me because I look at the chasm of ages there. Like even now, me I'm thirty nine now. Me being in a room and having that sort of relationship, that friendship with somebody that's twenty two, um, that it's kind of um, and that it was a you know their relationship, Malcolm and and. And Muhammad Ali's relationship. Sam was 33. Sam was 33. Okay, so I wasn't too far off. 33. Uh-huh. Jesus um, age. Right. Hey, there's something to it. Um, did their their relationship ship seem, you know, very much mentor, mentee, you know, the adoration that I'm sure. The big brother. Mm-hmm. Ali, yeah, the big brother relationship. But even that age chasm between all four of those brothers in that one room, that's even interesting to me. You know, um, that makes that conversation even more uh, dense to me because obviously Malcolm is speaking from a place of like, this is the utmost importance of our people. It's almost that same conversation in Ma Rainey, right, where where uh, Glenn Turman's character, you know, talking to Levy just about like there's a there's a place of like young 
just this young sort of like, yo, this energy of like, I could take on the bravado. fucking world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this bravado. And then this the, the wisdom that comes with like, yo, there's a different fight than than the than the brawl you know there's there's a there's this kind of fight that's going on you know there's a, a conservation of your energy and your time and a, a wisdom in how you dis- distribute that that matters just as much as the change that you're trying to make absolutely um, yeah, yeah. And, and um so that age difference helped really calcify um those words that like Malcolm was really saying there and I, maybe why it was being received the way it was i think it hits hard on the um roof too because uh um sam cook accuses malcolm of kind of being like a groupie or something like that and i mean that's gonna hit harder if you're like the oldest one in the group you're like the old head hanging out with a bunch of young guys and you don't even have like he's saying you don't even have a talent you don't have money like why you why you here telling us what to do those were some that, harsh that words, scene, man. That scene hit really hard, Martin. I'm glad you brought that up. And that, yeah, it is. There is a difference there because you have four, or you know, four guys, but three of them are really like successful pop yeah. culture, mm-hmm. like celebrities. Yeah, and then in the the fourth is a uh, political activist who 100 percent everyone knows in this room that he's gathered them with an agenda. And so I felt like that was one of the hardest scenes where it's like, you can see why they would feel that way, but also like they're misreading. I, I don't know. I, I mean, it was just, there's so I mean, much. I think there's some truth it. to it at, at yeah. some point, but I think Malcolm would, yeah. would say like, it's serving the greater purpose of like, I need you guys to be a weapon and whether or not you want to or not, like for us, for, our people, you have to do this, basically. I um, it that that scene was very jarring to me because it never occurred to me that someone would view Malcolm through that lens, and um, that like you know, you, yes. you stand on the corner and yell at people, but you don't. What have you actually accomplished other than standing on the corner and yelling at people? Yeah. And so it totally makes sense, um, having lived through you know what some may feel is the second coming of that that era of social injustice um and at at a similar point in my life as those people like how do people talk about the d ray davises and the um this one no (laughs) but um you know the tamika mallory's of the world like how are people Mm -hmm. what lens are they viewing them through you know when they don't necessarily agree with their methods for change um, and, and, you know, how they are supported, how they support themselves, how they're able to sustain themselves through their social justice work. So I, I never thought that like, and it makes complete sense. It's, you know, at, Martin was a minister, like he had a check from the church. <laughs> we know how he was feeding his children. You know what I mean? But it's just kind of like when you think right. about it, and I mean, Malcolm was too, but it, it's definitely viewed through a very different lens. Um, when there's well, no legitimacy afforded to even your religion in the black community. So I was just like, yes. huh, that is that is incredibly interesting. And I've never, yeah. ever thought about it that way or that someone would have felt that way. But I completely see why they would. It makes so much sense. I mean, for me, the, the, the building came tumbling down when he talked about uh, 
with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, how he lives, you know, uh, yeah, you know, I'm from Chicago, you know, he, he lives in this big, he lives, he lives like a slave, he lives like a pharaoh, you know what I'm saying? And and for me, that really started, it, you know, that was the first time that I put a corporate structure to the NOI, right? Like where I put like a real, oh, Malcolm is like middle management. You know what I'm saying? That's the that was the first time that I did so so it it made it made Sam Cook's message resonate even more because it's like this brother doesn't know about ownership for real. Like, you know, his you know, his his house was in the nation's name. His car was in the nation's name. That was something that his wife made a point of. You know, this brother doesn't have any concept of ownership because he has dedicated his life to the the uh what's the word the discipline Mm -hmm. the institute the discipline of the institution and it's it's almost like it almost showed me that his fight was antiquated at that point you know it's like the things the things that had taken place were to elevate the status of black america in terms of not just consciousness but you know economy and economics right and sam cook was the proof of that. And, and, preach, and, and preach, Malcolm preacher. didn't really recognize that. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like he didn't recognize that when Sam Cook said, y'all keep talking about y'all want a piece of the pie, I want the fucking recipe. There you go. It was yeah. like, that's it. You know, sometimes you get so caught up in the fight that you forget what the point of the fight is. And that's the thing that I never felt when it came to Malcolm, you know, I, I, um, so I'm right along with you, Lizzie. It's, it's like, it just never dawned on me that he was, he was, he was the, he was the, uh, you know, he was the Arnold Schwarzenegger version of the Terminator, you know, not the T-1000. It just never dawned on me that, that at that point in 1964, 1965, that he was behind the time. And that's, that's how I felt about that's how I felt about that, you know. Um, you I kept know. thinking during that discussion, um, and it, this may be a very uh, gauche comparison, but I think it's it's resonant in our our current age. But Tyler Perry, mm-hmm. uh, and uh-huh. and the whole film studio that he's opened up after years of, of criticism for the films that he was working on and, and now it's like this guy is inarguably uh, one of the most prolific forces in terms of, of bringing black people into the film industry mm-hmm. that's what I kept thinking about during that in terms of a modern parable that's, not to get off on too good. much of a Tyler Perry tangent, but um, I encourage y'all to listen to this week's episode of Other Tone, where Kenya Barris kind of talks about his relationship to Tyler Perry and how it changed over time with what Tyler was able to accomplish. Mm. In a good way or a bad way? In a good way. <laughs> okay. You, okay. You must no. not have I mean, watched Black a AF. Question, you know. No, you must not have watched Black AF. But oh, not should. not all the way through. I, 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 Did you see I, the portion I where the he was first, talking to Tyler? I think the first two or three episodes. No, you I didn't, didn't see the part. Oh, well, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, so, that is so great. That, that is that television gold. That. Please watch it. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, the very very poignant scenes, man. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. There, you know, the proof is kind of in the history, right? It's like it it would seem that uh, Malcolm X influence very much reverberated through the rest of the through the, through the rest of those brothers' careers. You know, whatever words, and I w- I wouldn't be as you know, obtuse to say that everything that he said in that room, that was it. I'm sure they had long going, long standing relationships with each other that extended outside of that room. That was just a microcosm of it. Um, well, that's found- what this, but that's what this whole play is, or in the film is about, right? Is sort of it, it, in this play, it all happens in one night, but not, but not in real life. In real life, this is you know years maybe of of influence, you know that that influence these decisions, but the dramatization of it into this one night is, is tremendous. I mean, it's it tremendous. really, it feels, it's so illustrious of, of so many different viewpoints. And I mean, and, and not that it's, it's not about my voice right now, but I, I just, as someone who was woefully undereducated about the whole thing, um, I was very affected by it. And I think this is an incredible movie and, 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 and a great debut from uh, Regina King as a director. Agreed. Agreed. Did anybody else find it weird that there was just a random Bob Dylan record? In the whole I time? loved that. Yeah. I thought that was so good. <laughs> I did too. I, yeah, that was that was very weird. But it it was a, it was a good point because apparently, I guess I guess, um, Change Gonna Come was inspired by Bob Dylan. Um, how did y'all feel? How did you guys interpret that? I had a discussion with my lady about it, and I and I felt like to when I heard it, it was. Uh, the scene didn't feel anti Bob Dylan, but it more felt uh-uh. like it felt like yeah. if if this guy who has no responsibility uh-huh. to uh, exactly to speak for our people is doing it this yeah. this well, why should why aren't we doing it? Why aren't you? Yeah, where's your excuse now? Right. You know, um, it, that, you okay. Know, it, okay. It, I just it, wanted it, to validate it, my reading. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he made it clear. He's like, you know, that song that song charted higher than anything you've ever done, you know, and it's pop music, you know, Um, or, or, you know, so what's your excuse? Was anybody else thinking about how um, the juxtaposition of the relationship that's portrayed in this particular movie between um, Malcolm and Sam, um, then having like the memory of viewing the the scene in Spike's Malcolm X movie where Change Gonna Come is playing and you know that Malcolm is like on the way to die. When he's walking into Autobahn And so much of Malcolm's death in my mind is associated with that song. And then to see their relationship portrayed this way would kind of like turn that on its head for me. Yeah, I didn't even think about that till you just said that, but that is very, that's, that, that, ooh, that strengthens that for me. And I believe that that song was like extremely popular at the point when Malcolm did die. Oh my God. I mean, Sam had just died like a few months before Malcolm, but that song was, was huge. Like, I thought he died after Malcolm. Uh -uh. Sam died in 1964 and Malcolm died. And, um, oh yeah, he died later that year. He died three months later. Whoa, that's heavy. They man. were both dead in, within twelve months of 
the night that this was supposed to take place yet. Man. And I mean, and also the juxtaposition of like the two of them a... being so powerful, having short lives, and then the other two men in the room living like full lives. I mean, Jim Brown's still alive. So um I thought that was yeah, kind of Jim cool. Brown's still alive, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that's that that makes that moment even crazier for me. Um, Thank you for making that parallel. That that's 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 pretty awesome. Yeah. Um yeah, strong moments, man. That that movie covers so much coverage in a, you know, hour forty minutes, man. Uh, so much history, and whether or not those are the conversations that happen in that room, like like you said at the beginning, Lizzie, I think it's even, it's it, the 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 fictionalized version of those conversations is probably way more interesting than what really happened in that room. Um, It'd suck yeah. if they were just talking about like. Girls bitches. and bitches, <laughs> rolling dice, <laughs> bitches like yo, fam. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever yo, seen that? that have you ever sucks. seen that meme where it's like Malcolm X standing behind Muhammad Ali, and he's like, it's 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 like uh you know like dialogue in the script. It's like um, Ali, Malcolm got all the bitches, and uh and Malcolm going, man, no, I don't, and Ali going, shit. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, that's the way that I imagined that yeah. conversation because of that meme, but I hope it was something more akin to what we saw in this portrayal. So Jim Brown is 84 years old right now. Mm-hmm. He's the last one. Yeah, last one standing. Yeah, remember he, wow. there was that big ordeal when Trump first got into office. He went to the Trump Towers to talk to Trump, and everybody was talking shit like, "Oh, Jim Brown, this, that, that." And it's like, man, listen, yeah, I don't, y'all, you know, whatever. That wasn't on my radar. Oh yeah, it was a black thing. people be mad oh, about man. things. Yeah, they be mad about everything <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, I didn't. You know, even though it was right there in front of my face the whole time, I didn't realize Malcolm X was such like a. He was so into photography, man. I, I wonder where all the rolls of the photos that he shot because he. It's, it looks like he got some iconic flicks probably off his Leica, man. That part. I I loved yeah. how he was so into that camera and like the craftsmanship of it, like. As a nerd about that kind of stuff, I that really spoke to me. Yeah, it's a point of connection. Yeah, it was man. It it just, it just elevated that thing again, where it's like, damn, that man was really he was just a human being, man. You know, mm-hmm. um, taking that. I thought I thought another fun another good scene to me was uh, when the FOI. You know what I'm saying? When they thought that that there was a real problem that was happening on the roof, and Jim Brown intervened. And how he backed down the FOI, you know what I'm saying? He he backed down. Uh, what was his name? Some X. Uh, Kareem. Kareem. Kareem X. I thought that 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 scene to me spoke volumes. Just knowing, like, you know how you know how the fruits are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but that yeah. scene was funny though, because you know Jim Brown would have been way bigger in real life. <laughs> but looking at <laughs> right. Alex Hodge, he like this skinny, like tall black dude. But Jim Brown was skinny, like a tank. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely a tank. But yeah, but that spoke volumes. It's like, nigga, well, you better back up for you have a problem with me. And they like, all right, you got it. Backing <laughs> up. I was like, well, that, that 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 to me, that was probably like the scene that taught me the most about who Jim Brown was at that time. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, um, yeah, man, that, that movie did a lot in an hour and 40 minutes or however long it was. It did a lot. Um, Lance Reddick. Lance Reddick. Yeah, yeah. Because he played. Uh, that's that's uh, Kareem. That's yeah, uh, from the wire. Yeah, from uh-huh. the wire. Yeah. Uh, and did you peep? Uh, Wasn't John Wick in the beginning? What did you say, Corey? Um, the other dude from the wire, uh, who had the, they they hung him in, in jail. What's his name? 
Oh, D'Angelo Barksdale. Yeah, D'Angelo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh. he was in the beginning. Yeah, he's oh, yeah, he played Bundini. Bundini. <laughs> yeah, he's Bundini. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you guys yeah. are John Wick fans, Lance Reddick is the he's the like the, the guy hotel. that works at the desk and yeah. the hotel. Yeah, yeah. but he's so so good. Before the wire, he was the guy in in John Wick for me. Now he's the guy yeah. for the wire. He's Daniel, yeah. yeah, Lieutenant Daniel. I haven't seen the wire. <laughs> what? Mm-hmm. I know. Hey, you didn't see it right. very recently. But now, <laughs> good but now I've seen it, so I can make those kind of comments. Yeah. Corey's good for that. Corey's good for up, for upgrading his life, and then a month later, like he's looking down on you for not upgrading yours. But it took hey, him twenty listen. years. That's, to how, un, that's how the un, that's how the world works. That's how the world works. No, seriously, Chan, you should seriously watch The Wire. It's like. Mind really you, when TV The Wire show. came out, you were a child and he was an adult and skipped it. So, like, you not watching it is way <laughs> right. more excusable than him not watching yeah, it. Yeah, I, I watch Breaking don't, Bad. I don't turn this on like, me. on TV. So, you know, I'm, do, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing my part out here. Doing your part. I heard that. Um, <laughs> is there anything else we want to we want to mention about this film before we break out of here? Um, is there anything as far as, like, that conversation between the two? Which side do you think is like fared better in like the last sixty years? Uh, the like, the white guy who uh, on the porch. I think um I think I think the 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 economics argument to me is the better argument. It, it to me, mm. uh, in my opinion, everything else. Like, like, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of what Lizzie said. I don't really like to separate the two. Right. I don't. I don't want to separate the two. But, but I do believe in my heart of hearts that the the economic status of the people um makes for a better entry point for the other things. That's my belief about uh you know about it but i know sometimes it takes the other things to get to the economic status so it's like a chicken or an egg thing but to to me i I would side more with sam cook a little bit i think that that is very like you like i think that that is the way that you seek to to make change yourself so i mean of course you're gonna feel that way and Mm -hmm. it's a valid feeling to have i think that just like you said like um, in a system of capitalism everybody's not going to be able to be in a position to provide opportunities so some of the you know i think like like we were saying earlier is it they're both necessary um mm-hmm. but i do think that when you are in a position to provide opportunities that should absolutely be your pr- approach yeah yeah i mean i i i am like i think the older i've gotten the more i do understand exactly what malcolm is saying like you know as a filmmaker i've kind of really reduced myself not and not reduced and like made myself, sh- you know, shrunken myself. But there was a point in time where I felt like, um, you know, I I, I want to tell all stories. I want to tell every story. The older I get, the more I want to narrow my vision to to the things that I have a perspective on. Um, and I feel like reducing my vision to things that I have a perspective on actually amplifies my ability to gain exposure to that perspective, right? Because like everybody's not going to know you for everything. You know, we know people for that one thing. You know, we know Michael Jordan for basketball. You know, we know Spike Lee for filmmaking. We know Elon Musk for creating shit. You know, like people know you for a thing. Um, and, 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 and there's not very many people that we put into the all persons category. Um, so, so I, I respect 
what Malcolm was saying in that way, which is like, there has to be an objective as, as, as a people that, you know, you don't, it doesn't always have to be politically charged, but you got to stand for something. You know what I'm saying? You got to stand for something, man. And, and, and I would hope that you standing for something would be as a black man, I would hope that would be the plight of, you know, uh, black people, but it's not your obligation to, you know, like in the, in the words of, uh, Allen Iverson, man, I ain't no fucking role model, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you know, just because just because he got into the bowling alley thing and had a thing, you know, with the with you know, with the city of Hampton and and it was politically charged, that doesn't mean he's the man to step in the shoes for a political movement. That's just the thing that happened to him. Um and um, that's how he views it. I mean, I'll I would say, say this. Oh, no, go ahead. I'll say just we're in a capitalist system, so like I've seen black ownership, just even in the music business, end up where black people like disenfranchise other black people just as much as like like major and white labels do. So I, I kind of fall more on the Malcolm side. Well, that's a good point too. As a as a white man, my my perspective is, and I'm gonna also quote Allen Iverson here when I say I'm talking about practice. practice. <laughs> <laughs> Not a game. Not a game. Not a game. Practice. Practice. How am I supposed to make my teammates better by practice? Mm. I, I felt like by. I, I felt like I felt like you were going deep, and and then you didn't. And that was a very <laughs> interesting feeling just now. <laughs> There's I'm, a remix of that on YouTube that's really good, and I hear it in my head constantly. That's yeah. all. I'm very. I'm sorry. I feel like I what I what I just did was a bad thing that white people shouldn't do, which is interrupt an important conversation about progress <laughs> with a joke about an Alan Iverson viral video. Well, way to be self aware, there, friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I regret it. It lives on forever now and immortality. I think it, it was good because I saw it coming as soon as you started talking. <laughs> So Thank I knew you. exactly where it was going. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Bet, man. Well, um, I think maybe this is a good place to bookend this conversation and uh, and remind you guys that uh, we exist on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Kinda Movie Critics and Twitter at Kinda Movie Crits. Um, and um, I, I, I think we're going to be having more of these discussions, man, with uh, Judas and the Black Messiah coming out. Um, I really want to see American skin. You know, there's just some movies that are very, very uh, politically charged and racially charged that seem to be either out or coming out this year. So um, I'm looking forward to more discussions, more KMC discussions, if we do put them on this platform in this vein and uh, provide Chandler more opportunities to do privileged white uh, <laughs> conversation <laughs> barrier things uh, with for, with Alan Iverson quotes drinking Moscow mules. Um, it's a gin so, uh, and diet tonic. With gin and diet tonic. Gin and diet tonic. Well, all right, guys, man. Remember, we call ourselves kind of movie critics because we kind of are and we're kind of not. We're just a bunch of people that like to watch movies. This has been an on ear network production. <laughs>